everyone, this is Katie from Maximum Edge, a CIC based in the UK, aimed at strengthening communities and the people within them. You can find us online at www.maximumedge.org.uk. We're also on YouTube, Twitter, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Udemy and Facebook. Hello everyone. The episode you're about to hear was a long-form interview that I had the pleasure of sitting down with a gentleman called Tom Boardman. Tom has a remarkable story about his time in the military during World War II. I'm not going to tell you too much about that now because all will be revealed during the conversation. But when Tom served in the military, he was actually taken prisoner by the Japanese and survived three and a half years in a concentration camp. He was working on the, the infamous Burma-Thailand Railway. Unfortunately, not long after this conversation took place, Tom passed away at the age of 99. So this is one of the last times we hear this story told by the, by the great man himself. Please listen till the end. There are some great gems that Tom picks out as to how our current generation and even ourselves can, can cope with adversity relating to what he went through and how we how we dealt with grim and dire situations during the, the concentration camps. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Thank you very much. Right, Tom, thanks very much for inviting us to your home and allowing yeah. us to talk to you today. Yeah. All we want to do really is just get your side of the story. You tell us about your, your experiences yeah, during yeah. the prison war yeah. camps. And... Well, um, of course, my story starts... Uh... In 1939, when I joined up, right. uh, my, a work colleague of mine uh, came to me one morning. I sat at my desk in, in the private hire department where I worked at Lancashire United Transport Limited and suggested we joined up. I said, You must be joking. <laughs> he said, No, I'm serious, Tom. Um, I've been my school pal all the time. And uh, he said, we can get in the regiment with fancy. And uh, so we went up to Bolton. I agreed after a few days, went up to Bolton and to the recruitment officer and found they wanted clerks, amongst other things, warehouse men, storekeepers, and uh, general RA, service corps, all, all the branches. So we fancied. Doing the job we were doing at home, clerical work. So um, we joined, both of us joined the RAOC, Royal Army Ordnance Corps. And the following day, we we were on our way to Portsmouth, to Hilsey Barracks, which was uh, then the headquarters of the Royal Army Ordnance Corps, to begin our training. So um, we got down there okay and started training straight away and uh, we found ourselves in the ammunition depot supplies line and after training there we were posted to Corsham in Wiltshire with a big underground mine of um, uh, it was baffling really, it was. 
It's built into the hillside, round the course of the hillside of Wiltshire. And there's all sorts of ammunition, everything you can think of. And it's a secret. Nobody really knew about it. But it was the main supply depot uh, for the army. So uh, anyway, we, we did that and uh, we were both in this caution depot for about 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then we got split up, which was always a liability. And John was moved to a, a small ammunition depot in Shropshire. And um, I was put on a posting abroad without knowing where we were going to. However, uh, we parted company, me and John, and uh, he was eventually uh, discharged from the army because of ulcers in his stomach. I continued with the ammunition services and uh, we went to Nottingham on a, a, a leave to uh, try to going uh, abroad. However, in March in 1941, uh, we were posted a site abroad and we went to Liverpool to join a convoy of uh, vessels, destroyers, and all told about 30 odd vessels in this convoy going abroad. Uh, some knew where they were going, but we didn't know where we were going. They were on the Duchy of York and uh, eventually sailed uh, one misty morning and uh, headed in the direction of America for four or five days, avoiding the submarines of the Germans. And then after about four or five days, we headed due south for another four or five days before turning east and going to uh, West Africa, a place called uh, uh, Freetown, uh, Sierra Leone, and uh, to take on water. We didn't go ashore there. It was so blistering hot too. Uh, the warmest place I've ever been to, including POW life. For a few days to come on then, we went south to Cape Town. Half the convoy went to uh, Cape Town and half of it went to Durban, where we had a week's leave, as it were. We, we could go ashore and the locals of Cape Town used to line up with their taxis and cars and, and take us around the area, showing us what it was like around there. Well, after that, we went to, we rejoined our boats and the convoy split, in, split up into two. Half of it went to the Middle East and the other half went up to Burma, to um, Bombay in India. And then uh, we uh, woke up one morning to be told we were on our way to Singapore. There was no war out there in Singapore at the time. So off we went and uh, went down to Colombo and eventually to Singapore, Keppel Harbour, where we arrived 
early in May 1941. Of course there's no war out there as I say. We couldn't believe it. Uh, there was plenty of food, uh, we had good accommodation and uh, we, we started to get used to Singapore. And um, I was being a sportsman, I was playing tennis, cricket, football in the regimental uh, leagues that they had out there because there's already a lot of men out there doing nothing really, only train for the Japanese invasion even when it came. And uh, quite honestly, we didn't think it was ever going to come, but it did. On the 8th of December, uh, 1941, the Japanese you know, bombed Pearl Harbour. At the same time, they invaded northern Malaya, which is part and parcel of the Malay Peninsula that leads to Singapore. And they decided that, that was the way they were going to take Singapore and go overland. So it was a, it's a, like a long peninsula and they were coming through the jungles and uh, rubber plantations and then going out to sea in boats or coming round lower down. So they were encircling the troops who were already up there. And uh, we were sending ammunition up to them, of course, keeping them supplied because I was in the base ordnance depot in Singapore, which is actually on the island. Singapore is, is an island, actually. It's fairly small, but it's still, still large enough. And um, they were fighting a losing battle because by this time the, the Prince of Wales had been sunk. The, the, the air forces were practically non-existent as far as we were concerned and they had the tanks and uh, most of our troops were using single shot uh, Enfield rifles and uh, the Japanese had automatics you see? so although there was enough men out there we weren't equipped yeah. efficiently, really, to stop the rod. So slowly but surely, it was uh, unstoppable. They crept down uh, Malaya to uh, Singapore. We're, we put up quite a bit of resistance there because they had to cross what was called the Johor Straits, uh, which is a, 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 a uh, water that surrounds Singapore and uh, we put a stop to it for a few days but we're now in we're, we're getting into January and February now of, of, of 40, 42 and um, uh, uh, as I said this went on for a few days and uh, on the Thursday the 12th of February 1942, we were instructed to uh, leave our barracks and go to try and defend the base ordnance depot, which never got around to because before that we were uh, withdrawn to uh, Singapore Railway Station. 
uh, on Friday the 13th of, uh, of February 1942. And uh, Saturday we spent sorting ourselves out, more or less. There were a few ships still left, but they could move people. So a lot of the high-ranking people were moved during Friday night, or Saturday night, sorry. And uh, we were sent forward to new positions, joining the regulars, the regular army. But we were, as base ordnance people, we weren't trained as a fighting force. We were instructed to shoot any Japanese you saw. So we went uh, up Bucket Timmer Road, which is a road that runs from the city centre uh, northwards to the causeway where the railway line crossed. By that time, um, uh, the Japanese were, were, were coming, coming onto the island in small numbers because the causeway had been blown up to a certain extent to provide, to prevent, should say, easy access to Singapore. But they eventually made it. And on Bucket Timmer Road, and uh, we were told to stop firing. This is uh, about 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, the 15th of, of uh, February 1942, because the British uh, forces, Lieutenant Percival, the head, uh, was entering into talks about a possible surrender and the terms that would be applied. So we did as we were told, we stopped firing and then about an hour or so later we had instructions to put down our firearms and ammunition in piles that uh, General Percival had decided to uh, surrender forces and ammunition to the, to the um, Japanese. So, because they, by that time, the Japanese had taken over the reservoirs and um, electricity supplies on the island. So, uh, the following day, we were told to go to the centre of, of uh, Singapore City, where they had what they call a padang which is a vast open space of, of grassland and uh, we had further instructions. We duly got there and we were instructed to go to an area of the island called Changi where there's a new airport now. But we were told to go there and we, we, we walked all the way from the city centre to Changi probably about 20 miles and, and when we got there we were absolutely demoralised and tied out and more or less uh, lay down where we could get and had a good sleep again waiting for further instructions uh, which really arrived which uh, said that we had to stay where we were of unaccommodation and uh, we were captives 
So uh, uh, we did that and uh, we got used to eating rice because the food we were getting by that time we were pretty hungry because we would not seen a decent meal for ages. The cooks started to try and cook rice and uh, we had all sorts of concoctions. A sloppy rice with uh, stiff rice and uh, some rice you couldn't eat at all. But uh, they eventually got to know how to cook it, steam it and uh, it wasn't too bad in, in Changi because there was still quite an, a lot of food on the island of uh, Singapore. It was very well stocked with food and uh, we didn't live too badly then. So we weren't doing very much apart from being guarded by Korean guards. Uh, we were just getting through the days, waiting for further instructions, which eventually arrived in, in October. So we've been in Changi from February 42 to October 42. And uh, the Japanese had decided to move us up into Thailand, which is a, a, long, a long way off and it will be transported there on the, the one railway line that ran from Singapore through to Bangkok uh, in cattle trucks. And the, the journey took four days or four nights and uh, there were no sanitary arrangements at all. It was diabolical. It was terrible, uh, terrible four days that. Eventually, when we had oh, one meal a day, we stayed at various places in, in, in Malaya on a meal, and we were allowed out of these trucks. And uh, the uh, Japanese had made arrangements for local people to uh, supply rice for us, a meal of rice and food um, vegetables. And uh, then on the way again to the next station. Anyway, we eventually arrived at a place called Bampong, which was where the new railway was going to start from, uh, as a link off the main, main line and run through to Burma, um, which the uh, Japanese hoped to conquer, of course. And um, when we arrived, it was a monsoon season and uh, they already built some accommodation for us, which was mainly bamboo and atup roof. Atup is a, is a wide leaf of, of a tree that was bent in two and sewn together somehow to make tiles about a metre wide and lapped on top of each other, which is quite, quite good actually. And the uh, conditions we found ourselves in were pretty horrible. And the, the cook houses were hardly functioning. They had to keep moving because of the, the monsoon season. They flood one area, then they flood another. And they keep moving their equipment and to, to somewhere where it's fairly dry. They could uh, get fires going uh, to make it a meal. 
I wish for somebody appetizing anyway. But uh, we were there for two or three days and then marched to a place called Kanchanaburi in, uh, in Thailand. And that, that was one of the places to be the start of the railway. But we went a bit further. We went to a place called Chung Kai, which was on the River Kwai. To get to the River Kwai, to Chung Kai, sorry, went across the river. And we could get just about get across without drowning. You could walk across. It was pretty deep, but you could get across. And we got to Chung Kai, where they'd already prepared. Uh, accommodation, as I've described, made out of bamboo poles and attic roof tops. We were told that's going to be our base camp. We're allocated two or three miles of railway to uh, complete before moving on to further up the through the jungle. Uh, the job itself was pretty hard. We had to move earth. If we were building an embankment, we had to move from earth from the side to the embankment. Or if we were moving, making it into cutting, we had to dig out the cutting, of course, or move the soil. So that was monotonous duty. Not much rice, not much food. Uh, it was pretty horrendous. But we got through it. We were given tasks, a task of moving uh, a cubic metre of soil per day per man in the hours of daylight, which were 6 o'clock in the morning to about 6 o'clock at night, 12 hours. We, we worked in groups of three. We had uh, what we called rice sack uh, and bamboo pole. Uh, stretchers, which is a pill, and then one man would be digging or filling. We had two stretchers, and then the two men would carry the, the soil, dump it on the track, come back, take the next one, and that went on all day. And we used to rotate our, our workload. He did a, a stretch digging and they also did a stretch carrying. Well, that, that was day after day after day until they got the level that the Japanese wanted. When we finished that, we, um, we were moved on to the next, the next uh, section, which meant walking uh, a few miles to another camp and do the same thing all over again. But um, the work was, work was monotonous, and uh, on, on the, the meals we were getting was inadequate. We got three meals of rice per day. The first meal in the morning would be uh, boiled rice with a spoonful of sugar on it. That, that was every meal. And at lunchtime, Parties from the cookers would bring out the rice in uh, four-gallon four, uh, uh, kerosene cans. 
that was used to, used to carry kerosene and uh, we had a meal on site and it took about 20 minutes and back to work and then back to the camp at night for another meal of rice and uh, we used to call it juggle water it was, uh, vegetables boiled and that but it was just like green water it wasn't much use really and uh, that went on day after day after day for three and a half years moving on digging also building bridges we had to build a bridge it went over a ravine we had to build a bridge across it which was mainly constructed of trees which sawn down manually with a, a, a two meter saw you know yeah. going through it uh, felling it and then we had teams of elephants with the tie mahouts to drive them and drag these uh, tree trunks from the jungle to the, the railway, the, the ravine was, where the Japanese engineers would uh, have them sawn into the lengths they wanted and start constructing bridges. So it could be anything really when you're on the side in the, in the morning, providing you're fit enough. And by this time, uh, malaria struck and uh, dysentery and various tropical diseases but uh, there'd be a parade first thing in the morning and the Japanese would supervise it they, they determined who should go on the working parties but uh, often the uh, medical officers would say well this man's, this man's not fit to work 12 hours up in the jungle uh, in the heat of the day and uh, we want him excused for a couple of days while he got round up his, uh, his malaria or dysentery. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But um, it was hazardous that job. That went on for 12 months building the railway and we, we, we finished it on time actually but um, there was a lot of lives lost. The main thing was that you had to have a strong, very strong willpower to keep going otherwise it had it. It was very depressing and uh, we used to get occasionally on the Emperor's birthday or something like that, a day off. He asked me day, that was We look forward to that. It gives us a chance to get into the river, have a good wash down and uh, try to get the bed bugs out of our, our bed spaces. And get round of dysentery, but you more or less always in a state of dysentery. And um, malaria, as I say, kept striking and striking. I personally had 32 attacks of malaria in various degrees, some worse than others. But I got through that. And you're lucky if you got a pinch of 
quinine, powdered quinine, which you had to get down somehow. Now we were using the river uh, for our cooking, it was our drinking water, it was also our bathing water. You used to have to boil the water before you drank it and uh, boil it again. And then to be sure, boil it again. Because that was the main source of problems with your bowels. And uh, it was a question of survival, really. Survival of the fittest. How did you cope mentally with all that then? To endure all that? You had to have the will to get through. Yeah. That was the main thing. And uh, keep each other uh, well. Like if you're your bed panel, bed mate next to you, and the, there was about two or three hundred in a hut, and there's about ten huts, you know, uh, you'd have to look after your pal and uh, get his meals, bring his meals for him, and things like that. And so it was guys helping each other. Right. There was a strong, very strong bond grew between prisoners of war. Very strong bond. As I say, we, we eventually finished the, the, the railway line and we came back uh, in open trucks. It was alright, that wasn't too bad coming back again. And we, we crossed, we built a, a bridge called the Wumpo Bridge, which is a very long bridge. It was a work of art, really. And uh, when we were comp uh, uh, building it, we were under the instructions of the Japanese engineers and uh, Korean guards. And uh, you'd be sawing down trees, uh, elephants would be dragging them down to the site where the Japanese wanted them and they were cutting joints in and uh, putting uh, metal uh, bolts through to hold it together. But uh, rather rickety, in my opinion. Anyway, we got over it, we came back, we, we got back to our base, base camp, where things were a bit easier, but the food wasn't any easier, which is the main thing. But um, a fellow called Leo Britt, He'd been in the, on the stage in London and uh, he was a marvellous man. He could remember a lot of the, the storylines and uh, he was on some good shows. And there were also people who uh, had been on uh, the stage, there was a fellow called Frankie. He had a, an accordion, he was a professional. He could play in any tune you thought of. And luckily, I was in the same camp as him quite often when we were leapfrogging each other yeah. camps. He, he would be there and he used to go around the huts playing his accordion. Uh, and I, by this time, I built this, this guitar, of course, and I used to sing a few George Foreman songs just to, and we'd move up the. Up the um, the camp line and then back again and uh, keep trees happy everywhere. So things were quite a bit better then but the illnesses and um, uh, and things happened and 
and at a critical moment, uh, cholera broke out, an epidemic of cholera, and you could leave your camp leave in the morning. Two, three, or four, or five people would have been moved onto a, a, a separate area because they had cholera, and they probably lasted a couple of days and, and uh, went like that. They all caught through. Uh, uh, water uh, imperfections, yeah. and uh, altogether, there's about about fifteen thousand died in the construction of the railway alone. There in uh, Wargrave cemeteries in Chunkai, which was our base camp, and Kanchanaburi, which was the number four group camp. So. Uh, Lost quite a lot of lives out there. I'm often asked how did I survive, and uh, you can't help but say it was pure luck. You're either lucky or unlucky to, to survive them. If, you, if you're in a camp where there's no quinine, for example, malaria, it, it was deadly. Malaria, a deadly disease. Because it got into your mind, in your brain, and uh, it used to see off. Hallucinations, it was uh, miles away, different world altogether. So, uh, uh, you were lucky, really. I said, I'm 99 now, so touch wood, I did all right. There's quite a few older than me, as a, as a doctor. In London, is by name of Franklin, Doctor Bill Franklin. He is one hundred and five. Wow. We attended a, a service of remembrance a few years ago, Ronald and I, and uh, we had a service on the Oscars Parade, and did the usual walk from Oscars Parade past the War Memorial to Westminster Abbey where we had a lovely meal and he walked it and Ronald was pushing me in, in uh, a wheelchair that I've got. I, I think I lost my legs in, in, on the tennis course at Lee on football field because I had my own sport. I used to play tennis uh, three or four times a, a week and I'd chase anything to get it back and not realising my legs would give way eventually. Which they have. That's more so, so the, the railway finish. Now, there's so many people still left that the Japanese decided to give us another war effort. That was building earth strips for the uh, fighter craft to alight, take off and alight from in, in Thailand. I was given one, along with hundreds of others, of course, in southern Thailand. And uh, that wasn't a bad journey. We were decent, uh, we were still on home trucks, but they weren't ex cast trucks, and then they used to stop for toilets and things like that. And we got down to southern Thailand, a place called Pechaburi, and uh, built a, an airstrip there from uh, January 1945 till the end of July 
1945 when uh, it was finished. Of course, the war finished a few weeks after, and uh, the first plane to arrive was in Dakota. And uh, we flew from there to Rangoon, where we went into uh, the various medical hospitals there and uh, given the once over and uh, allotted for uh, trips back to England. And again, I was lucky there. I got on the first ship that arrived in Southampton in uh, October, 8th of October 1945, the first ship back in England. So I was lucky there. I've kept pretty well since. I, 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 I was a tennis champion uh, on a couple of occasions at Lee. And, uh, are they grass courts? Are they in Lee? Are they well, the, no, they're uh, shale courts. Right, but uh, we, we had uh, a fellow of mine while we were in Singapore, uh, in that period where there was no war, uh, a fellow from Leicester called Sid Holland. He was a good player. And we used to. There's only about two of us and there's about four courts. Everyone didn't take up sport. Some got back on the bed and had a siesta. But we used to go play in the last hour before the sun went down in Singapore. Eventually we entered an open competition at the Singapore Chinese Recreation Club. We hadn't realised it, but they were playing on lawn and the ball didn't get up at all and we, we lost miserably. I think we lost 6-1, 6-1 here. But it was a good experience. Yeah. I said, here I'm back to tell the tale. I might have missed one or two things out while I was going through. So I just exercised my mind. I told you about the railway trip from Singapore to Thailand with four days and four nights and that was horrible. I was the worst four days I spent. Uh, whilst we were in, in uh, Changi, we were given forms to fill in, saying we wouldn't try and escape. But between me and you, there was no chance of escaping uh, out there, because all of us are the Chinese, Malays, or people up in Thailand, the Thais. So you should be recognised. And then they, they put a price on their, our heads. If, if, uh, if they spotted an Englishman walking around the street, let us know, we'll give you so many pounds to do it. So I never tried it on myself. So. Uh, anyway, we, um, we didn't sign them, his forms. So in consequence, where well, we'd occupied a very big area in Changi, well, all the area of Changi spread out and plenty of room. We were concentrated in a, what appears to have been a, a barrack block belonging to one of the army battalions out there. I think it was Argyll and Sutherland Island, one, one camp. And we were all put in one camp. We were even sleeping on the parade grounds. Yeah, and we were digging the parade area into slit trenches 
for toilet requirements, because that was the only type of toilet requirement we had, and there was always slate trenches. Even in the jungle, there were slate trenches. Horrible things, uh, maggots crawling up the side of them, and uh, it was, uh, as I said previously, horrendous. I told you I built this ukulele, that's still on view in the Imperial War Museum North, um, Salford. Yeah. And uh, it's open every day. And uh, when I donated, I, I, I specified that. I didn't want it put in a back room somewhere, I wanted it to be on view. Yeah. They've honoured that requirement ever since then. Um, we, we get back there from time to time, doing little speeches, talking to children who are visiting and things like that. What do you think that ukulele represents? For me, it was, uh, I've always liked making things. And since I come back, I made a sailing dinghy. I sailed it on Lee Flash, and from parts which I had to trim and put together, and that. And uh, I was satisfied when I made it, and that was so satisfaction. As a consequence, I found I was taking off other jobs to be in the concert party, either as part of the orchestra, and. Uh, or doing songs in a group, you know, singing George Formby songs. Because yeah. a lot of people knew George Formby. Yeah. A lot of people from Lancashire up in the POW world. Yeah, that's, uh, that's another part of life right there. Well, the other thing was that, unfortunately, I lost my best friend, uh, my army best friend. He's a staff sergeant like myself, and he, he came from Grimsby. Now, he didn't go up onto the railway when the parties were first sent up there. I think he was ill at the time, and uh, he didn't come up until the last minute when they were pushing to get the railway finished. And they were sending a lot of people who should never have been sent up. They were all, all sick, already sick. And he, he, he was a cholera victim. And unfortunately, he's still up there. He was cremated up in Thailand. Because they used to burn all the cholera victims. It was so serious right there. So. Have you ever had the opportunity to go back? Yes, I've been back twice. Yeah. And I did a. A movie, and I've also done about five or six albums of photographs out there, visiting the war grave commissions, nice. uh, uh, graves which are uh, immaculately maintained out there, and they have the record of Les' uh, um, death. Uh, up, up in the town. It was near the Burma border then. I never got to the Burma border. The furthest I got was a two, what they call 226 kilometre camp. Because there's no no, no uh, villages or towns up in the, in, in Thailand, especially up in the north. 
because the Thais and the Burmese don't get on very well together. He got a bit further than me, but he unfortunately he didn't come back to her last. And again, part of mine. We used to, uh, again, going back to the uh, period when there was no water there, we used to write at night in a cinema called a cafe. And there were the first, first class films. They were always up to date. Just released, they were flown out to Singapore on uh, these flying boats right. from uh, uh, from America, from Pearl Harbor Way. And the plane used to land every day about four o'clock in the afternoon and then take off the following morning, take in post and stuff back from Singapore until the war started, of course, and that, that stopped. But last night, we used to write from Amazon, which was called the Union Jack Club uh, in Singapore. And you can get staircase, chips, peas and onions, fried onions, uh, for next to nothing. Yeah. The, the cinema, these films, so the Road to Ballet and, you know, the Ben Crosby films, and all films. We had some good nights out together, man, man, lads. Yep. Have I missed anything out, Ron? Maybe how you constructed the ukulele. I don't think you've touched on how you made the ukulele. Oh, yeah. Well, again, a lot came into it. Uh, before I went up onto the railway, we were given jobs around Singapore for the Japanese. Either working in the warehouses, the dockside work warehouses, unloading their ships that were bringing stuff in by that time, or um, building memorials to the, the few Japanese that had died in the process of taking Singapore. And uh, I was, I think in June, I was put on a, on a party to work at Kranji. Uh, assisting from Changi, all these words about here then, Kranji. And that was near the, the uh, Kranji Naval Wireless Station. Yeah. And uh, there's a deserted village uh, near to that place, and it had been, it had been bombed by the Japanese. And uh, I was walking through one day and uh, I saw this broken down mandolin and the gears that you used to tighten up the strings yeah. were still in tight. So I took those off and I thought I'll have to go making a, a banjo because I had a, a, a ukulele before the war and I had I bought one on the way out to Singapore at Cape Town and to, just to amuse myself. Yeah. Then I looked round to find wood, suitable wood to make a sound box and, uh, and the fret to take the yeah. frets, things like that. And uh, I put it all together over about three months and found the nails that are long enough for to, to use, you know, thin enough, and um, eventually made it and got it tuned up. 
and uh, brought it back. I thought it was a bit of a job bringing it back because you, you always had your kit bag and you have a sack uh, to carry and your rifle. So uh, I, I had my hands full getting it back. Anything else, Honor? Where'd you get the strings from, Dad? Oh, the string. Well, the strings were tied off wire. It was a cut and they called separate strands inside the tiger fire and uh, I tried them out and uh, found it worked alright so I used tiger fire to make, to, to uh, create the strings. The bridges are easy to make the bridges on a wooden with four slots on for the four strings and uh, the, no problem there. Did you have to tune it by ear? Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, GCAA, uh, the, the notes of the four strings. Right. You, and uh, used to sing, used to tune it to the tune of My Dog's Got Fleas. My Dog's Got Fleas. <laughs> and it's a turn, you know. And then you could tell when they played the chord whether it was right or not, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's either flat to sharp or something like that. <laughs> That's more or less the end of my experiences. Yeah. The worst thing was the food, of course, and the intolerable work load, working through monsoon seasons. It wouldn't, the saw wouldn't come off your spade, you know. Oh, I know, but it's a meter stick. Um, each guard had what they called a meter stick, and women finished our task, or thought we'd finished our task for the day, we'd tell them we'd finished and uh, they'd measure it and uh, it'd be three cubic metres of course if it was right, but if it was wrong, that was it, outcome of the stick, it became a BT stick, they'd bash you on the back with this metre stick, now that could be anything from an inch, half an inch, uh, you know, to, to, to work you with. In the mornings uh, we had to count in, in, in Japanese, which was something like this. Echi ni san si go roko, sichi ajiku ju. That's up to ten. And just repeat. Echi ju, echi is eleven. One and then Jew is 10, yeah. and then and, and, oh, another one making 11. <laughs> so if, if, if it stopped the sequence of going along the line into Nissan, Seagull, Rocco, even Ronald can use a few words now, um, you used to get a slap across the face because you, you hadn't uh, learned the numbers. <laughs> but, uh, They'd give you a slap across the face or another, and you just could not retaliate. It was fatal to retaliate. Just finished reading the book now, or Ronald nearly finished it. It'd been written by Colonel Outram, who was a, the colonel in charge of the uh, Chunkai, and uh, more or less confirms what I've just told you, really, that the. the 
the senior officers were moved to Taiwan somewhere, and the, the lieutenant colonels and below were taken prisoners of war with us, and they suffered the same anxieties and illnesses that we did. And Ronald's enjoyed reading that, haven't you? Yeah, I read it to him because of his eyes. He reads me a couple of chapters each day. I've read loads of books and Dad has, and that's the best account, true to life, confirm right. what my dad's told you. I've got any further questions, then? I just want to ask you one thing. What? Pardon? You've obviously been through a lot of tough times. What advice? Have you got any advice what you give people? who were going through any tough times or dealing with difficult things, difficulties. Yeah, difficult okay, not one. Uh, not can, can, can I, can I Yeah, yeah, can He's asking you, have you any advice you can give to people who are going through tough times, given what you've been well, through? Well, it's very difficult, because you don't know the exact circumstances. Yeah, of course. But the thing is, is, to, is, is to keep strong, keep goodwill. Uh, things can change, and you probably may change if you've got the willpower and the ambition to to improve life that you're suffering at the present time. But that's the the main thing. Um, our motto, uh, this uh, um, association, Forest Primor, is to keep going the spirit that kept us going. So this is quite a good motto yeah, yeah. when you come to think about it and what you experience. You had that spirit to keep going, that willpower. And uh, it's been a good association, man. It's only just now that the, the um, small uh, branches are closing down. Right. And there's not a lot of us left, of course, now. Mainly all in the 90s. And uh, more or less suffered the same things. Because we all suffered the same. Yeah. There's no discrimination. You all suffer the same. Silence, illnesses, lack of food. Uh, it, was, it was a grim, grim life. I wouldn't like to go through it again, but... Uh, I got through it. Well, you did it so we don't have to go through it again. Yes. Oh. Right. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing story, Tom, and thanks for letting us uh, yes, all right. come in and listen to your talk. Yes, I'm, uh, yeah. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Tom telling us all about what he endured during World War II and how he came through it and the mindset that he used. Um, I'd like to personally thank Ron Boardman, Tom's son, for allowing us and giving us permission to use this this audio um, to put the conversation out into the wider world for other people to try and benefit from it. I think there are points in there that we can all take away and use in our lives when dealing with any kind of adversity or stress. Thank you very much to the Boardman family again for letting us use it. Thank you and we'll see you next time.